0: I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church of Centuria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend, Apentus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, who I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa those women who worked hard in the Lord, greet my dear friend, Paris. Another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Eccentricus, Phologon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk, flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience. So I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good. And innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sociopater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, Who is the the city director of public works, and our brother Quartus sends you their greetings. Now, to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through. through the prophetic writings, by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I,
1: I got to tell you, I was a little disappointed. Um, you just, you weren't very excited during that scripture reading. Um, yeah. I was looking. I kept looking back. Nobody's leaning forward. People are kind of dozing off. And I'm like, what is wrong? This is one of the most exciting scriptures in the Bible. I love this chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. And I don't understand why you're not getting excited about it. Now, I, I, I didn't always feel that way. I didn't always appreciate this text. I mean, there was a time when I just thought, oh... This is so boring. This is so long. Why is this in the Bible? This is so useless. Well, shouldn't we have edited this out along, you know, with the genealogies and the Old Testament laws? We don't need this anymore. It serves no purpose. It just makes it harder to read through the Bible in a year. You know, can we get that out of our reading schedule? I can't pronounce the names. I struggle to imagine who these people are. I think Shane did a pretty good job with the names, don't you? Yeah, show him some appreciation. Yeah, that's really good. Now, do you think he did a pretty good job of pronouncing those names? You have no idea. You don't have any clue how those names are supposed to be pronounced, and neither do I, and neither does anybody else. Those people died a long time ago. We don't know how they pronounced anything. We got some written fragments from back in those days. Why is this in our Bible? Reader's Digest certainly would have edited out. Who are these people, and why should I care? You know, our names probably sound weird to them, but what does it matter anymore? I I mean, I recognize a few people. I know Priscilla and Aquila, and I know about their... Traveling tent ministry and tuition-free Bible school. But, but the other people, I don't know. Junius, she makes me nervous. A woman called an apostle and no explanation. That's going to cause problems in the church. People are going to argue about that. Ampliatus sounds like he's missing a limb. Urbanus, I'm guessing, was from a city. Narcissus sounds completely self-absorbed. Aristobulus sounds snooty. I don't like him tryphena and tryphosa must have had an indecisive mother tryphena tryphosa did everyone in Herm- in rome get Hermes and hermes confused a typo you could end up in charge of something at church you just never know i wonder was fling on a cling on did a syncretus walk with a limp i bet Philologus never shut up olympus was obviously an athlete i don't want to talk about gaius let's just move along I'm not sure how a guy named Erastus ended up being the director of public works. He doesn't sound trustworthy to me at all. And then to top it all off, Paul tells this motley group of people they're all supposed to kiss each other, and I'm just completely uncomfortable because I'm a white middle-class man from America, so please give me two feet of space and don't touch me. (laughs) But here's the thing. As much as we just kind of glaze over when we read this, and we're like, oh, why is this in the Bible? Here's my guess that if you were a member of this little mission church in the capital of the world, when Paul's letter arrived and it was read for the first time in your gathering, my guess is this would be your favorite chapter. You see, you might have been tempted to nod off in the long theology sections you know, where Paul is trying to explain how salvation works and how the cross works. And he's like, you know, Jesus is the new Adam and and how we're all children of Abraham. And it gets really, really complicated. And then he gets into chapter seven into the, you know, I don't do what I want to do and I don't do what I ought to do. And I do be dooby doo do kind of the Frank Sinatra section there. And you're just like, what in the world? It's hard to understand. And you may have nodded off. But when Paul started naming names of people in the room, I'm guessing your ears would have perked up. Oh, wait a minute. I wonder if he's going to mention me. I know these people. Maybe Paul's never been here, but Paul knows some of us. I don't know this guy. He's never been here, but, but he sure knows a lot of people in this church. And all of a sudden now, a guy who was some missionary from some other country that we don't know anything about, all of a sudden he starts feeling like somebody that knows us, and we have a relationship here. And, and if these people who are being named are the people that you meet with every weekend to worship, and these are the people who are suffering the same ridicule and social prejudice that you are, and if these are the same people who've been kicked out of their professional guild, and they can't work for full wages anymore because they're no longer licensed and bonded because they wouldn't burn incense to Caesar at the temple. And so now they're having to take jobs for a half or a third of what they would have made before. And they're living day to day and they're struggling by and yet you come together with them on the weekend and you worship and you're reminded that Jesus is bigger than Caesar and this is your family and this is who holds you together. Then when Paul starts naming those names, you feel like if Paul knows them, I know Paul. And the next time that letter is read, you're going to pay better attention because this guy's talking to us. He knows us. I I, I love this chapter. It's become really important to me because it reminds me of what's really going on in the Bible. We we have reduced the Bible to a library. It's not a library. It's not a collection of books. This, This is a letter. This is a letter written from a missionary who's going to be visiting a church where he's never been. And when he gets there, he's going to ask him for money because he wants to take the gospel to Spain where nobody's heard of Jesus. And he's going to be stopping over here and he wants these people to understand what his message is. He wants them to understand what he's going to be preaching. He wants them to understand the urgency and the importance of it. And so he sends him a letter But he also has a a very strategic interest in Rome. This is the capital of the world. What happens here gets told all over the empire. And if this little church in Rome cannot hold together and it fractures over the ethnic tensions that are splitting it apart, then that same thing could ripple out all over the world. And so Paul starts to address very deep-seated ethnic tensions in the church by telling them the gospel story. And how Jew and Gentile are bonded together in this grand narrative of what God is doing and that God is reuniting and remaking the entire world in Christ Jesus and how that has to be lived out in this particular congregation. You may have differing opinions about this or that. You may have different ideas about eating meat and how you deal with a a world that's infested with idolatry. And you may have different understandings. But listen, Jesus overrides all of that. Jesus reunites all of us. God is remaking a world and we're all going to one day with one voice sing praises to the same god in heaven so we need to start doing it right now and and in in all of this conversation and all the deep theology paul wants to make sure as he gets to the end that we understand that this is not about ideas this is about people Paul reminds us in all of our endless discussion of doctrines and doctrinal purity and church issues that are so far removed from the real daily life of most people, God's work is about people and people's lives. And churches are not institutions built on programs that need funding and administration. The church is just a collection of people. People to love, people with names, people with stories, trying to figure out how to live their lives in a world that seems to be coming the opposite direction. And when we view the church as an institution, when we think our mission is about organization building, we have terribly distorted the gospel. Because the kingdom of God is not about having right ideas, or well functioning appropriately designed institutions the kingdom of god is about people that god loves people that god has put in our care people that god has called us to reach out and serve and draw back to him and we really need to hear this those of us who are leaders and deeply committed to church and deeply committed to mission because we get stuck in our thinking. We've been stuck in a Western, institutionalized version of Christianity for so long. We now think of church as one of the pillars of our culture. And, and we get obsessed with institutional structures and metrics. And, and we want to do church right. We're a little OCD. We want to do church right. We want church to be successful. And we want to be done the right way. And so we ask questions like, how big, how many, how effective and we're not really sure how to evaluate, but we know how to count, so we count stuff. We count people all the time. We don't know how to measure spiritual growth, but we count attendance, you know, and we get all worked up about that. We don't know how to weigh people, but we can count them. And we're Americans, and that means that we want to be winners because Americans hate losers. We worship success, and we determine success by return on investment and return on investment is a matter of counting and we want to feel successful and we want to go to a successful church and if we're not trending upward then we begin to feel self-conscious and we begin to feel like failures and so we want to do stuff to get the numbers up because we want to be attached to a growing successful institution We get real concerned about the negative trends. We're worried about the millennials. We're worried about what's happening in our country. And we're really worried about saving Jesus' church for him. We're obsessed about programming and planning and preaching and getting it all done right. And the next thing you know, we've turned church into something that's so abstract and analytical that we've gotten lost in the math and the metrics and the mechanics. And we have forgotten what we're about and Paul will have nothing to do with it. Paul keeps his feet firmly on the ground even when his head is in the cosmic realms and he closes his most intellectually challenging letter with a list of people's names and he says love each other hug each other serve each other and he reminds them of their connections and he reminds them of the sacrifices and he reminds them of the relationships He gives this list of people's names who are trying to live out the story of Jesus together in a hostile city without one word about programs, building, attendance, uh, leadership positions, roles, job descriptions, nothing like that. Because there's no power in any of that. And Paul's words here remind me that we are never once in Scripture commanded to plant churches or make them grow. It's just not in the Bible, but we are commanded to make disciples of Jesus, and to make disciples of Jesus from all the people groups, all the nations, all ethnicities. We're supposed to be loving them all in the name of Jesus, and this list of names is a reminder that the church can never be collectively what its people are not individually, Did you know it's entirely possible to build really big churches with huge crowds that have almost no disciples of Jesus in them? And the American church has been doing that now for decades, and the millennial generation is looking at us and saying, we can't really tell the difference between you and a business, and why would we want to help your institutional religious business be successful? Because what they're saying is, what difference are you making in the lives of people? And if you're not transforming lives what good are you and the church is struggling in large measure because we have forgotten we're in the people transformation business not in the institution building business and we live in a culture now that doesn't trust institutions our schools our government our businesses corporations and our churches they've all lied to us they've all broken promises Leaders have posed as one thing and been revealed as something else. We just don't trust the marketing anymore. And we're looking for credibility and authenticity. We're looking for something that can change lives and change worlds. And what that means is a better business plan will not solve your problem. The goal is not to build big institutions, but to model the way of Jesus and to form people in the way of Jesus, because congregations can't be saved, only people can. And we cannot lead people to be what we are not. As in the creation story, we all reproduce after our own kind. And so if I'm going to make disciple, I've got to be one. And my greatest point of leverage is not some program out there. It's not some position in the church. It's not something I give money to. My greatest point of leverage is myself, my relationship with Jesus, and my relationship with real people, with real names and real stories that I'm influencing because I'm pouring my life into them one at a time. And the same thing is true everywhere in the world where somebody is living on mission. And Paul shows us a concern for real people and who they are, and he never mentions church events, programs, or structures. Not that they're wrong, But those things can facilitate things, but they don't make things happen. Good structures and programs can get in the way, or they can make things easier, but they don't drive anything. Now, I've been in congregational ministry of some sort or another, and now in global ministry for nearly 30 years. Preach for churches for over 20 years. And most of that time, I was working on the wrong end of the problem. I, I kept trying to build the right kind of institution and assuming that it would produce disciples of Jesus, and I found out that was a wrong assumption. I should have been asking, what's a disciple of Jesus? How is one made? How do I model that? And how do I inspire other people to do that? And then how do we leverage this group of people to start doing that? Because real change comes from discipling real people one at a time, starting with me, and then letting that multiply out exponentially. And if people are disciples of Jesus, you don't have to worry about encouraging them to be evangelistic. They won't be able to help themselves. It's just what disciples do. And if you have an evangelism problem, you've got a discipling problem. And if we will stop trying to save the church and just lose ourselves for the sake of real people, the church will find itself. 1950, roughly, give or take, Mao Zedong took over China in a communist revolution and began a process of trying to obliterate the church. He arrested all of the church leaders. He confiscated all the property. He confiscated all the seminaries. He shut them down. He tried to drive Christianity out of the country. Because he saw it as a threat: People who have a primary allegiance to Jesus do not have a primary allegiance to the state. At the time, there were about two million Christians of any type in China. They were in small, Western-looking uh, denominational churches, the property paid for mostly by European or American churches, little churches of 30, 40, 100, maybe here and there. Two million. The church is driven underground, stripped of their buildings, stripped of their institutions, stripped of everything except the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And In the 1990s, when the bamboo curtain lifted and Westerners were able to get in and find out what was going on, they had found that the church had rediscovered their missional DNA and had exploded. And there were some 80 to 100 million Christians in China. Today, as many as 120. There are more Christians worshiping in China this weekend than will worship in the United States. So tell me again how a new institutional structure will solve your problem. You see, it's not about these things. Not a problem, but they don't fix anything. And as we reflect on how Paul closes his letter to the Romans, there are a couple things I want you to remember. Number one, and most importantly, the mission of the church is to make and form christ-like people we call them disciples but it's just somebody who's trying to be like jesus somebody who's just imitating jesus it's not about the, the mission of the church is not about getting lost people in the church the goal of the church is getting christ in lost people the directionality is outward. We are here to get Christ in lost people. We are to get Christ in neighborhoods that don't know him. We are here to get Christ into communities where he is absent. And it's great if they want to join us and assemble, but we don't win by getting them here. We win by getting Christ in them. And if we don't know the difference, that we don't understand the difference between institution building and being on mission. We are not trying to save the church. We are joining God in the work of saving people. And it makes all the difference. People like Fabio and Simone. You don't know Fabio and Simone most likely. They're members of the Itaquera congregation in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I preached there in 2005 because I was the preacher for their sending church. We supported the local missionaries there. They were Brazilian nationals. Uh, and beloved, beloved people, wonderful people. And, and so I'm preaching here. I don't know why i don't speak portuguese they don't speak english i'm having to preach through a translator it is awful to listen to a preacher through a translator but for some reason they wanted me to preach there so i'm struggling through this and fabio and simone are just sitting back there eating it up i'm like what i don't understand and you would love fabio because he looks like his name sounds he should look like he's be on the cover of a of a romance novel you know i mean he wears these Italian-like looking skinny leg suits and he's dashingly handsome and gracious and charismatic and Simone's your typical Brazilian which means that she's very emotive and they come up and they stand really close to me and they spit in my face while they talk and they want to touch me while they're talking to me. I'm just like, driving me crazy. And they come up and they tell me, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you because your church brought us Jesus. I don't know these people just overflowing with gratitude, and they start telling me how Jesus has changed her life, and Simone tells me about how her sister is dying of cancer, but she's not afraid now, and she's not afraid to losing her sister, because she'll see her again, because she believes in the resurrection, because she knows about Jesus, and I'm like, I, 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 I don't, I don't, wow, the gospel, the mission, it's about people like Charles Cabeza. He's one of my favorite people. Charles Cabeza survived the Rwandan genocide. His parents were already dead, and he and his brothers were fleeing the capital city of Kigali in 94, and they were trying to get to the Congo, where there were refugee camps, and the Interhamway militia was, was chasing them. They were going to slaughter them. A million people died in 100 days. And here they are, just boys, fleeing, and they get a mile from the Congo border, And there's a militia patrolling the river into the Congo during the day. And so at night, they tried to slip across the border. And and, and they can't ever seem to get across the border without some patrol coming by. So they're hiding in a barn during the day. And at night, night after night, trying to slip across the border. And they can't, they're afraid to try, get across the river without somebody coming. And somebody spots them and, and tells the militia about them. And they come in with machetes and they slaughter these boys. And Charles is the only one who survives. And he somehow gets across the river. He gets into the Congo, which is a horrible place to be in a refugee camp. You just can't imagine what that's like. Finally, the war is over. He comes back to Rwanda. He goes to Kigali, He finds some distant relatives who give him a spot on the floor to sleep and a little food to keep him alive. He starts going to school, but when he graduates, nobody shows up. Nobody cares. He's just another mouth to feed. He's a problem. He comes to know Jesus, and he says, nobody else should ever have to graduate high school uncelebrated. So he starts a ministry called Extra Mile Ministry, just to minister to other genocide orphans in honor of his brothers who couldn't make it the extra mile across the river. It's one of the most amazing Christian leaders that I know, leading a ministry in Rwanda That ministry, since 2009, they've planted over 300 churches. They've baptized over 4,000 people. It's astonishing just what God is doing through the life of somebody who's just completely sold out. But, you know, the mission isn't just about making Christ-like people. Number two, I want you to understand, the mission isn't just in Africa or Asia or Europe or Latin America. It involves us right here. We need to get over this myth of saltwater that you have to cross an ocean to do mission. There is no transformation by aviation. Getting on a plane will not turn you into a missionary. If you are not a missionary here, you will not be a missionary when you get to another country. And North America is one of the continents that God wants to claim. We're doing mission right here. And as we talked about with the group yesterday, with immigration, you can touch nations all over the world and every continent without leaving your zip code just people all around us, people like my, my little buddy Nason. Nason was a um, second-generation Mexican immigrant uh, in Amarillo where I preached last, and I was frustrated. A lot of us were frustrated. I'm, I'm a preacher. I'm stuck inside the church walls all the time trying to take care of the saved, and I'm like, it's so hard to get out and meet lost people, so i just, I got to find a way to do this. So a couple of us just went to one of the elementary schools in the worst neighborhood in town, this gang violence and all kinds Just said, Can we just come in and be mentors to troubled young men? And the school was like, yes. And we were like, you know, we kind of want to talk to them about Jesus. It's like, we're not going to talk about that. Please come. <laughs> and so we just went and started eating lunch. And, you know, I, different guys through the years I worked with. Nason was my last one. Nason was the fourth of five children. His mother was from San Antonio. She was not an immigrant. Um, Spanish-speaking, English-speaking kind of mixed. Dad was a Mexican immigrant, and his mother, Consuela, who was my friend, Abuela Consuela, made me tamales. She was mio amigo. Um, she spoke no English at all. Nason's father spoke no English at all. Naysan told me he didn't speak spanish because he was ashamed because he thought that meant he was second class his english was very good but i was in his house enough to know he understands everything they're saying to him but nason's mother decided after she had five children she was a lesbian and left them all for some young white woman in her 20s and she spent a lot of her time in bars and she was always getting beat up or in a fight or thrown in jail her life was just a disaster. His dad worked on the kill floor at Tyson, killing cattle all day long, worked really hard in long hours, came home in the afternoon exhausted, totally emotionally unavailable to his family. Nason didn't want to speak Spanish to his grandmother. His oldest brother, who was 17, was in prison for um, pulling a gun in some kind of crime He had two older sisters, 14 and 12. They were both locked up. One was pregnant. The 12 year old was pregnant. Nason was off the charts intelligent, and he was barely passing. And in his neighborhood, to be smart meant you were a sellout, and he was afraid to dream. I stood in his yard as he pointed to the neighbors, and he told me what was happening in each one of those houses. That guy's a drug dealer. That guy beat his wife with a pipe. I mean, it's just one thing after another. He has never known anybody who got out of his neighborhood and made anything of themselves that didn't spend some time in jail or wasn't in a gang. He is so afraid to dream, and every time his teachers tell him how smart he is, he just feels this pressure to do something he doesn't know how to do and to be somebody he doesn't know how to be. And the deep ache in his heart is, my mother doesn't love me, and I don't understand why. And he's tough, and he's trying to be brave, and he's got this whole macho thing going, and it takes a long time, but we form a relationship. And he starts telling me how he broke into a home last summer and stole an Xbox, and it's like, good grief, you know. And and then one day he just breaks down and he cries, and he said, why doesn't my mother love me? and i just held him and i said it's not your fault it's not your fault nason and i tried to stay in touch with him he was in and out of trouble we moved i took this job and we moved to the dallas area and i would call him every so often but they didn't pay their phone bill regularly and sometimes they had a phone and sometimes they didn't and then one day the phone just didn't work and then it just never came back and i called the school and they can't give me his number because they're trying to protect him from me and and I'm just like, God, please, put, a, put somebody in his life who loves Jesus. Please. And then there's my friend Muhammad. Muhammad works, well, he doesn't anymore, until about a month ago, he worked at the computer store close to my house, computer repair store. And I had to have something done on an old hard drive that wasn't working, and I took it in, there. and here's this guy who looks very Middle Eastern, and, you know... Get to talking to him, drop it off. Can you fix this? Yeah, I think I can. I come back a couple of days later. Yeah, yeah, I can fix it, but it's going to be another day or two. Okay, fine. I'll come back a third time. This time, we're really starting to talk, and I'm like, I, I-, I love your accent. Where are you from? Af- Afghanistan. Afghanistan? Wow. How long have you been in the country? Three months. You've been How did you get a visa to come here? We're afraid of your people. Oh, I-, I worked for the U.S. Army. I was a translator. I went out on patrol hunting Taliban wow, that was really dangerous. Yes, I can never live in my country again, but when my time was up, they gave me a visa to come to the United States, but he left his wife behind, his whole family behind. He can never go home, and he's been waiting now for over two years for his wife to get a visa to join him in the States. He lived in an apartment with five other Afghanis. He worked at a job as a computer repairman from 10 in the morning till 7 in the evening, six days a week. Sunday was his only day off. I asked him, I said, what do you think about America. Are the people kind to you here? He said, no, people don't like me here. I said, why? He said, because my name is Muhammad and I am Muslim. And as soon as people find out, they don't like me. I'm like, Mohammed, I just want to tell you as a follower of Jesus, I am glad you're here, and you are welcome here, and I want to be your friend. And he said, oh, you are my first American friend. And so I make up excuses to go to the computer store. I just keep taking old laptops from the office and seeing if they want to buy them and refurbish them. I've taken him to eat. He thinks guacamole is disgusting. (laughs) Chicken enchiladas are okay. If you take the chicken out of the tortillas, the rice is good. These people are everywhere. I don't know if I'll ever get Muhammad to follow Jesus, but I do know this. I can't talk to him about Jesus if I can't talk to him. You can't have a spiritual conversation if you can't have a conversation. And I'm going to have to love him for a long time before he feels safe enough to trust me to believe a message that would cause him to be alienated from his wife and his parents and everybody that's ever mattered to him in his life. But that's our mission, isn't it, people? People? Am I willing to love him long enough to earn the right to speak good news into his life? Our mission must drive us as we focus on people, people with names and stories. It's not about how many we can get in. It's how can we get Christ into these people? And you can do this in Fort Smith. You can do the same thing here that the Carols and the Carsons and the Tigners and all the others that you support are doing. The Nigerian nationals who are being trained there to take the gospel out. My goodness, look at the hundreds of people here. Why would you expect them to do something you're not doing? Do you ever ask? Do they ever ask you how you're doing with your baptisms? You know, they have the right to ask you how you're doing on your end of this relationship too. You know, we don't give money to missions. We don't give money to build churches. We give money to God to save people. I love that line from that movie, The Sixth Sense. I see dead people. Yeah, so do I. Every stinking place I look, I see dead people. People who don't know their God. They don't know why they exist. There's no spiritual life in them. And they need help to move on. Just like those dead people in the movie The Sixth Sense. They need help to move on. Can you see them? Can you see the dead people? Or do you just see the tools in the landscape in a narcissistic world of your own making? You watch the news? Do you see these stories about refugees? You want to stand at the Rio Grande and hold up a hand and say, I'm sorry. Jesus said, you're not welcome here. This is for us. You see that picture of the little boy? Injured, Syrian little boy in the back of an ambulance after the explosion in his apartment in Damascus. You're going to be the one to tell Jesus, no, we didn't want him and his people here. Refugees, displaced people, people just seeking a better life for their children and they want to come here where we can tell them about Jesus so easily. Genocide survivors, people just looking for hope in an unstable world. you got international college students by the hundred across the street. God's bringing the nations to you. They're right here. My goodness, you can change a world. They're all talking to their relatives back in their home country. What happens here affects the world. But it's also the waitress at the restaurant where you're going to go be working, I mean, eating after lunch. It's the person working at the convenience store. It's that Vietnamese lady who's going to do your nails. The Walmart checker who gets treated like a piece of machinery all day, every day, and just somebody to look her in the eyes and say, how are you doing? I bet your feet hurt. People being kind to you today? You ever get in the same line To just talk to that same checker every time so you can form a relationship because you know that that person gets treated like a piece of machinery and you want them to know that they matter to God. You can. It's not hard. It'll take you a whole three more minutes. You know what? Every single organization, every nonprofit, every congregation is going to pass away, but every single person made in the image of God will stand before him in judgment. Every single one of them is created for immortality, But we got to see them. Don't tell me Romans 16 is boring. That's a list of people. People that matter. People that I'm going to meet one day. And they're going to tell me how to pronounce their name. And I'm going to tell them how to pronounce mine. And we're going to have all the time to get to know one another. Because they're eternal and I'm eternal. So let's stop obsessing about church and let's get back on mission. Let's focus on what can endure to be part of the new heaven and the new earth. God, grant us the ability to see people and stories and love them in the name of Jesus. We're going to offer an invitation. If you want help or prayer in any way, come forward or we stand and sing.